everyone. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazines on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. And in fact, last month's, or this month's, I guess, interview was with uh, today's guest, Brian Buckmar. So a sort of abbreviated video version's up there now, but today's the full version. Uh, so there's something you can check out if you want to watch us talking to each other. And uh, we are funded by the great Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn more about the PNWA at pnwa.org. And so like I said, uh, today's guest was he, Brian Buckmeyer, was the subject of our video interview last month. And he is a, or was actually, uh, until very recently, a senior staff New York City public defender in the Criminal Defense Practice and Homicide Defense Task Force at the Legal Aid Society, representing indigent clients in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he's also the anchor for Law and Crime Daily, a nationally syndicated show covering the hottest cases and controversies from courtrooms nationwide. He's also a legal contributor for ABC and has covered events like the deaths of Ahmad Arbery, and George Floyd and the trials against Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly and many more. And of course, he's a debut novelist. First novel, Come Home Safe. Tough subject matter. Talked a lot about uh, crime and race, but this guy is such a bright light. It was such an upbeat conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, well, I'm just glad I get to share it with you now. Enjoy. All right. It's a good day. We got Brian Buckmeyer on the show. Brian, how are you? How are you doing? Great. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, so I could have a, this show could just be nothing but lawyers who have written books. So you are joining a long tradition. Um, there's so many of you, but um, lawyers are storytellers, sort of by their nature. Were you, were you always a storyteller, even before you were a lawyer? I would say more an orator than a storyteller. Putting uh-huh. paper was never really my thing. I'm a, I'm a litigator, so put me up in a group of people and tell me to tell a story. I'm 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 in my element, but uh, writing was no, it was not really my thing. Interesting, but but you know, writing has been my thing, perhaps obviously, but I always feel that I really learned it by sitting around with my family or my friends and telling them a story, saying, I'm going to try to be entertaining, funny, shocking, whatever. So were you one of those young people who were in a group? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I count my my mother's Jamaican, my father's Canadian, the West Indian culture generally is about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Most of the things you learn about your your grandparents, your parents, we don't often go to books to learn this. It's, it's a oral right. tradition. And uh, I've always been the one that's, I understand it's a it's a huge fear speaking in public, but it was never a thing for me. If I no. could there telling you what happened in my day at the dinner table or explaining something to a jury, I love it. I'm like a fish in water. That's so fun. I'm the same way. I remember when I was a kid, and I didn't understand how much public speaking I would end up doing later on in my life. But if there was a microphone and someone was supposed to get behind it, I, and if I wasn't me, I thought I wasn't doing my job. Like that, it's just it made sense to me. And so I assume when you were a kid of getting up in front of the class, not a problem. Okay. So my, my mom had always this thing where it was like, 
I, I didn't know I was becoming a lawyer at the age of six, but if you wanted to go, <laughs> if you wanted to like get a nice jacket or, or something that you saw at, at, a, at a store, uh, mom would be like, well, why do you want it? And you have to get up there and like give your reason. Right. You, your cousin got an A in this and I'd have to like, well, my cousin got an A in this, but I can get an A in that. And if I do this and then this and then that. So I was always negotiating, always trying to coax my way into something. Uh, I think that's probably where I became a lawyer. Make your case. Make your yeah. case. Give me the facts. That's interesting. And so you were your mother is Jamaican, but was she actually from Jamaica? I mean, had she been born in Jamaica? So she was an immigrant to Canada. Yeah. So she was born and raised in Jamaica. She left when she was 14. Uh, my father about the same thing, born and raised in Grenada, left, I think, when he was 13. Okay. Right. Our high school sweethearts met in Toronto, Canada. And then uh, wow. years later, I was born. And so I've 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 interviewed a bunch of, of um few lawyers who came from immigrant families, even one who was born in Atlanta or Alabama and then moved to California and she considered herself an immigrant family because the cultures were so completely different. And she talked about that immigrant mentality of like, I think my my friends whose parents were Korean, of like, you better succeed, man. You better like go get those A's. And I sometimes think it's not always, but sometimes stronger in that if we're new to here, we got to prove it. Was that kind of palpable? I'll give you this. So that, the immigrant family, I had three choices growing up. It was doctor, lawyer, or teacher. That is so... Well, teacher. Think, At least they let you be teacher where you don't I, have to make any money. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, my father is the only son to have a son. So <sighs> up until July 28th of 2023, I was what was considered the last Buckmeyer. Um, thankfully, I, I have quote unquote done my father you right. Have, you, you have a pro progeny. I have a son, so <laughs> like the name will continue. Hey, hooray. Well, you you hope. You don't know anymore. We don't know. <laughs> but wow. he, was, he was a little heartbroken that I named my son or our son after my mother's mother, Olive Reed, and I'm technically Brian the second. And he was like, so there's going to be a third, right? And I was like, dude, sorry, dad. It's kind of, it's always weird naming your son after yourself. I can't, I just feel like. Like George Foreman and his 17 Georges or whatever. Like, I can't imagine. Although my brother was named after my father. So what do I know? All right. So there you are. Learning tone. Like, I know the tone when my mom's calling me and when my mom's calling my dad. Oh. Wow. All right. So, okay. So, so you're, so you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to do good in school. There's just no choice. And you, and you, and you did, I'm sure you did, you know, being able to speak is a huge, I think, it, it reminded me of writing like I was a good student, but my ability to write, it just made most of it so much easier just because most kids don't know how to write quite, quite honestly. They just don't come to it. But you obviously knew and you probably knew how to study. Is that fair? Yeah, I think uh, so. I'm a, I'm a former college athlete. I, I played Division One and Division Two soccer. And so for me, yeah. A regiment of two a days and even yeah. the book i did two a days i'd wake up in the morning and write two hours in the morning i'd write two hours on the train going from upstate new york to the city and then back to come home so it was that regiment that i think yeah. I, sports and and, uh, and then academics and now the book yeah yeah right i i was an athlete also in in high school i couldn't bring myself to do it in college but the discipline of running up a hill i did track and football but track was the big up a hill again and again and again and again just it does and i always related it to the arts and so okay so you so you become a lawyer but it, it and so did you study in canada or the u.s no so i i came to the united states on a soccer scholarship uh did oh. a year in bay then three in queens new york and wow um as most of us canadians do you fall in love and you think well i'm gonna, oh. I'm gonna stay in america that 
relationship didn't work out, but uh, I fell in love with the law and I went to law school. I ended up graduating. I don't know. I moved it. I can see it. Well, oh, something's back behind you. Yeah. So my diploma from Washington and Lee um, University or School of Law is in the corner. That is my certificate to, to practice in the Supreme Court of the United States. Ooh, uh, have you um, done it? Have you ever been there? Not yet. Not yet. I've oh, heard no. arguments. I'm, I'm working on it. I've got the, the pass and now it's, it's about getting there. Um, these days, it's an interesting court. It'd be an interesting court to get in front of these days. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I, law school, undergrad, all in the United all States. Right. And then I uh, came to New York to practice, specifically but, Brooklyn. Well, and, but as I understand it, you were a public defender. Is that correct? Yeah. Is that where you started? Is that where you went first? Yeah. So 2014, November, I started in Brooklyn, uh, the Legal Aid Society. I actually just quit being a public defender about five days ago. Wow. So it's, it's still pretty fresh. I still think of myself as a public defender. It's not even a sure. week yet. Um, but I was in what's called the criminal defense practice. So I represented indigent people being charged of a crime. And I worked my way out. Um, junior attorney, senior attorney, trial attorney. And I was fortunate enough to join what's called the Homicide Defense Task Force. So I was one of the attorneys that if there was a homicide in the city of New York and you couldn't afford representation, I would work with another senior attorney who has far more experience with me representing homicides, but I'd also do attempted murders and lower on my own. So you are both a good guy. You're the one stepping in, but at the same time, you're also representing the people that a lot of people are very upset with. Yeah. <laughs> you probably are representing people who have done what they've done, but your job is to help them not have to spend the rest of their life in jail, maybe. So it's a yeah. difficult job on a lot. And plus, they keep you busy, I assume. Yeah, we were we were walking around with 60 to 80 cases Jesus. at the time. Um, I was pretty heavy on felonies because that's the work that I enjoyed. My thing is, if, if you did something wrong, I wanted the process to be done right. Yeah. Uh, you never know if you, you, you throw the book at someone and, and what if you got it wrong here? I yeah. wanted to make were dotted and T's were crossed and that someone's humanity came across and not just the accusation. You know, isn't there also something if you, it occurs to me as I listened to you, I hadn't thought of this until this moment, but let's say you did the thing, right? Because, yeah. you know, people do get into all kinds of, I just interviewed someone who was a mystery writer and she was writing about crime. She says, murders aren't mysteries. It's usually pretty straight. It's someone's mad or someone's on drugs and it's usually not complicated and all this, but, but people make mistakes. But I would think a sense of a fair trial and that someone took the time to represent you, I, give you a chance to heal something, a sense of, because if you've committed crimes, you feel abandoned, you feel angry, you feel alone, you feel like nobody cares about you. Maybe that little scintilla of people caring about you might help you give a different view of yourself in the world. Am I being too optimistic? Is it possible? Yeah. So I'll give you this, because it, it always comes. People are like, you're a public defender. It must be hard to represent guilty people. I say, right. no. Right. It's the easiest thing in the world to represent guilty oh. people. I always tell people, thank you. You must assume that I'm such a good defense attorney that I can turn guilty people into <laughs> innocent I don't have that power just yet. But this is the example that I give. I had one client who, by all stretch of the imagination, did bad things. He did what's called public lewdness, where he would get on the subway, expose oh, himself, and even at one point hit a young lady with his exposed parts. Oh. He did this four or five times over All the right. course of about eight years. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? So right. I actually took the time to dig into it. And I realized of all of his cases, it was always on the same subway line. Of all of his cases, it all happened in about the same area. 
And I dig a little bit deeper and I found he was a doctor about 10 years before this. Wow. Nine years before this, his twin sister died. He lost his practice, his wife left him, his two kids stopped talking to him. And the reason why it's on the same train line is because he would get intoxicated, think that he's going to his sister's house, get so blacked out as he's on the subway. Wow. This is what he would do when he was drunk. We finally figured out what was going on. And instead of just saying, hey, do another six months of jail and we'll see you in another 12 months. Right. We got him the substance abuse program. We got him into mental health program. I, I connected the dots for the prosecutor. And after, this is when I first started practice in like 2016, I checked in on him for the next two years. He was never arrested again. That's a lot of my practice. It, it's figuring out, digging a little deeper past the, the, the surface level where someone would say, hey, this guy's whipping his stuff on the subway. We <laughs> do with him see this is good practice for the for your fiction writing because fiction writing you may have discovered you may not i know that come home safe is your first novel is this true yeah. okay uh it's you got to go beneath the surface characters motivation who they are it's just not there you it's always about what's going motivation is never things are never what they seem what you just described is such a more interesting story than just this guy's a monster lock him up he's crazy get rid of him such a more interesting and humane story a more humane story and so so you've been you had a whole other career too which is people may have been able to figure out you're very good speaking on camera and so people someone else figured that out and started hiring you to do shows you're on you do abc is that right you're kind of a legal analyst okay yeah. we could talk about that but i want to get to the book um right you said you did writing wasn't your thing so yeah. you could go around giving talks on this subject you could and you'd be great you probably do and reach just as many people maybe more so why what why the book why the book so the um, actually my wife came up with this deal I, I was thinking about different projects and all this kind of things like well i'm gonna write a book for lawyers my wife said you guys have enough books like <laughs> books for lawyers. like <laughs> and uh i thought well i write a children's book my wife and i were thinking about having kids i'm like how am i going to teach them like know your rights and originally the book that you're seeing over my shoulder <laughs> it started off as a book about two bears in the wood and uh, a park ranger interacting with them. It was very cutesy. It was very... All right, you know, wait, I'm going to stop you. You've just learned the first lesson in that story is the first lesson of writers. It's never what you think it is. It's your first yeah. idea, and then there's what happens. Okay, so you, so right away, you started one place, you went someplace totally different. Yeah, and as I started writing, I'm like, this is, it's not really hitting the mark. And I started developing something for a, an older audience. And I started putting my two cents about interacting with the police what happens it's stuff that i've talked to my clients especially juvenile clients about hey this is how you be safe don't don't do that that's not smart don't argue with cops right. in that fashion right. like, you could have gotten seriously hurt um, right. but it wasn't until the death of elijah mcclain in colorado i have a younger brother who is 12 years younger than me i also have a younger sister who's about a decade younger than me as well my brother saw his death on tv and he comes to me and he says brian you're a public defender. You, you, have a, you host a show on law and crime. You're an ABC legal contributor. You, you taught me how to shave. You potty trained me. You bought me my first suit for, for, for graduation. And his words still ring true to me. He said, how do I not become the next hashtag? Wow. How do I interact with police in a way that I am guaranteed to survive? Wow. From the time he was 14, and it's in the book, I always told him, you don't put your wallet in your back right pocket. Because when you do that and you reach for it, it could also be misinterpreted for you reaching for a weapon. You put it in your front left pocket so it is clear as day to everyone what you're doing. And he's, just like, he's like, now I understand why you, you always kicked my butt 
when I put it in my back pocket, you made me do it. So now where is the next nugget of wisdom? And I looked at him, I was like, I don't have it. Like I'm, wow. I'm still figuring this out. And so when that happened, the book really kickstarted and I started interviewing other parents within the criminal justice field. I started interviewing former prosecutors, judges, court officers, whoever had children who might be having this conversation, I was desperately looking for the answer. And it's that collection that, that kind of made the book. Did you interview police officers? So I interviewed peace officers. So they're peace officers. officers. Okay. I never interviewed police officers because my worry was that their view of police officers would be different than the general public. Right. Because from what I found out from a peace officer, he says, you can actually go to a store and have a wallet for your kid that has like a fake badge. And so when you, and it says like son of a cop or daughter of a cop or something like that, with the intention of when you open it and another officer sees it, the officer says, oh, okay, don't worry about it. It's like the PDA. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but we don't have that. Like, (laughs) I I don't have that protection. Uh, Why would I do this person if they have a protection that I don't have and that my audience... Right. Okay. Interesting. And so you did these interviews. Were they, I mean, you've been around the, I mean, criminal justice is your life, right? Yeah. So you know a lot about it, but I assume you learned some stuff. I learned a lot. Um, yeah. I knew, so I knew the wall in the back pocket because the actual peace officer taught me that my first year, uh, he okay. worked in juvenile court. So I'm like, all right, I went back to him. I got more. I learned about how people like, I don't even let my kid have a black, brown, or silver wallet because it looks too close to the butt of a gun. Right. Uh, I talked to my kids about when they, the line as to how far they can invoke their rights with an officer. I talked to my kids about this. And it's also the way in which they describe these conversations were both empowering, but keeping them safe. That right. there was a place for, yeah, we can shout and march and argue in this, but when it comes to my child, I need to make sure they're home safe. And, and as I kept saying it, that was everyone's mantra. Like, I just need them home. And that's right. how I got to come home safe. And, and, it, and it's the verbiage and the lessons that they use that really shocked me and really enlightened me. And so the goal in writing it was tell a story, but it gives you an opportunity really to have this conversation with as many people as possible, whether you maybe you'll be there, maybe you won't be there, but it's to really get this conversation going about helping these kids but it's really kids because it's it's and men and boys more than girls probably right um i I assume the majority like because people are going to be well i don't know i don't know maybe it doesn't matter how old you i would think it's young men who would be the biggest target for this kind of stuff but maybe i'm maybe i'm off so there there are some issues that do come up with women it's it's more predominantly with being searched especially by male officers right we think about the violence and we think about the harm, not just the, the extreme like death, but being thrown up against a wall, being right. being handcuffed. Yep. It's predominantly men and young boys between the ages of about 12 and 13, because you got to remember, I mean, I was six foot tall at 14. Yeah. Yeah. So was I. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so if you're one of those young men who are 5'10 at 13, 12, you don't look like a boy. You're talking 12, 13 to maybe 22. 23 that's that's about a 10 year gap and that's when a, that's when parents are really letting their children go in the world right right yeah helps more of those people than anyone else safety man safety i think the issue of safety my wife was doing a research on pain physical pain 
And there are these people who have done a deep dive into why people feel physical pain. And we think of it as just a purely physical thing. It's not. There's a whole me- And for most people, pain was related to safety, not feeling safe. And if you can't feel safe in the world, it really is like the most foundational need we have. Does that ring true? Rings so true. It rings so true that I remember the conversation I had with my mother two days after I had my son. And I was like, so wait a minute. You just walk around the world just perpetually fearful of this other entity <laughs> not being safe. I never understood it. And my mom was like, Welcome to parenthood. I was like, yeah. I don't like this feeling. This because I I can I'm in my house. I feel safe right now. Before my child, I never had to worry about some my mom's my my brother's 22, my sister's 23. Like they're all like relatively safe, but this impending worry. Oh man. I put my kid on the bus to go to school in kindergarten. I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> I was like, when are they coming home? What's happened? I was really scared that first couple of days. It was just a little kindergarten a half a mile away. I was still, you know, it was on my mind. I used to laugh at the the, the, the movie Finding Nemo when the father was like, yes, yes. I was like, I understand you now, sir. Uh, I get you. I, I respect you. I was laughing before, but now I get it. Well, so this is, it's great you've written this book. You're a great ambassador for it, clearly, because you bring such such um, joy. I know it's not a joyful topic, but I don't think there's anything in the world that doesn't benefit from joy. I just, I think it's it's our goal. Never do I not want to be joyful. So I think you're a great ambassador for it. Do you Do you ever dream, as I do, where you, no one has to have this conversation. Do you try to picture, do you try to picture the world? I think it's, I, here's my take. I think we have to be able to picture it to create it. If we can't picture it, how do we expect it to, do you ever try to picture that world where you yeah. don't, where no one has to have this stupid conversation? I hope that one day my grandchild, so my son's child right. will look at me and be like, dad, granddad, why did you write this book? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Like I want it to be so foreign to future generations that I look foolish. Yeah. That was my hope. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important because I think we're going through a time of, I do think a lot's changing. You yeah. know, sometimes my, fr- I'm a, politically I'm a progressive. It's where I, maybe people may not be shocked to learn that, but that's where I land. But my frustration with progressives sometimes is that they don't believe in progress, that they seem to be so terrified to acknowledge when something However small has happened, and I just have learned from myself in my career, I don't know if this resonates with you, that if I don't believe something can happen, I, I will never be a part of it happening. I have to first believe it's possible for it to change. Does that make sense? And sometimes progressives are so worried about, oh, we've got to acknowledge the problem. We refuse to see when success is happening, even in tiny parts, in pockets. Yeah? Yeah. I, I mean, I am a hopeful optimist. I mean, I... So... Even in the book, I tell people, so my wife hasn't finished the book yet. She's only read halfway. And I'm like, just, just finish the book. I uh, the end, there's a bit of an uptick and you get a little better. Right. Maybe painful for her a little bit. I mean, I named the main character after our son. Oh, jeez. So, okay. <laughs> a little home for her. Um, and so there is this optimism. But I will say that the optimism is sometimes has to come face to face with a punch to the oh, gut. Absolutely. And the reason why I say that is like, I have the utter, the utmost optimism when it comes to the progress we've made. It's This isn't 2014 in New York when we had stop and frisk, for example. Right, we've got right. a lot better. But we also just 
came off the death of Tyree Nichols. I know what time, right? Just happened. Right. Yeah. Uh, we we always thought that Rodney King was the worst. That we I know. Didn't see a beating like that ever again, and then here we are. Yeah. Now people are arrested, fast moving in terms of prosecution, the transparency, all those things. And so to your point, yeah, we have made progress and we have to celebrate and look at that. But every once in a while, we kind of get this gut check and, and oh, that hurts. You, I think it's all of our challenge. I, I was talking to my, my oldest kid about like the elections and when they're coming up and she was feeling pretty gloomy. I was like, you know what? I understand your gloom. I have to be an optimist, optimist or I will just kill myself. I can't, I can't just... I have to believe in something. And I think it's all of our challenge to be able to say, to see the world with earthquakes in Turkey and kids being killed and COVID, all that stuff, but to maintain the belief in something else besides that. Because you can live in despair and the facts of the moment and just drown in it, really, I think. If you don't believe in something some greater arc. I always loved what Martin Luther King said about the arc of history. I thought he was absolutely spot on, absolutely spot on about bending towards justice. I do believe that myself. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'm a, well, I was a public defender. I'm going to get back <laughs> into it and, and, and do some more court appointed work uh, in the future, probably at the federal level, make this, uh, this little thing. Over my um, so what do you, what do you, so now that you're not a public defender, are you just going to be a full-time like Joyce Vance or one of these people I see at MSNBC? Or are you going to be going into private practice? Are you done with the law? What's your deal? I think the law's not done with me. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, I really, at the forefront, I, I want to be a dad. And I, oh, I okay. that the TV slash book gig allows me a lot more time with my son at this point. Uh, I am going to apply to what's called the Criminal Justice Act panel. That's called the CJA panel, where you are like a private attorney who is like a 1099 for the federal government. And you take on federal cases as a, as a quote unquote public defender. Yeah. I am branching to that because court appointed work is at my at my heart and soul at the end of the day. But that affords me the ability to not do 80 cases at once, right. but just two or three be with my kid, be with my wife, do some TV. And then in a couple of years when he's in school, we'll get back to the grind. That's interesting. That's good. It's a good choice. It's tough to make you because, you know, ambition, success, money, accolade, you know, we all have egos. We have to, you know, satiate yeah. hopefully in some way or another, but good for you. Good for you. You will, you will, it will, you'll be glad for it. Uh, and uh, you will uh, be confused by it. And uh, you will learn from it if you're anything like me. And so, all right, well, good for you. Do you think another book? Maybe? What do you think? Now that you've done this? I I, I want to say yes. Um, and the reason why I say I want to say yes is because I think there's another story to be told. Good. And when you read this book, you're going to realize that this is about being falsely accused. Right. But there's also, in my mind, a lot of dangers that I would teach my kids about being physically searched or searched in the car. And so in my mind, there, there's another side to this. And I do think that that probably needs to be written. Okay. Um, I, I maybe have another story in my bag that I can probably tell as well. Um, but it's just a matter of taking the time, doing the journey and seeing if there's enough to continue this story of Reed and Olive growing up in this world and, and trying to 
meet this balance of safety and advocacy for themselves and their and their siblings. Now, maybe not in a book form, but in an essay form, would you ever be interested in telling some portion of your story? The story of Brian, because it's probably interesting, probably got some lessons, or do you just, it's not, what do you think? That appeal to you at all? It it's what I do. It's what I do. So I'm always interested if someone like yourself who's got an interesting, who's probably done some interesting stuff. Yeah. For me, if it benefits someone else, the answer yeah. is yes. Yeah. And don't like they, at work on ABC and Law and Crime, they're like, Brian, you should do Twitter. I'm like, no one cares about what I'm thinking or doing. <laughs> no one wants to see what I ate at breakfast today or, or whatever it is. But I do see that as I do speak to young people, as I do speak to others about my career, um, the law or whatever it is, there is a sense of me being vulnerable, helping other people yeah. be vulnerable and explore that in themselves. And I think that if you have the ability to do so, at least for me, I think there's a duty to do so. And so I think as I grow and maybe continue this story and I see people's reaction to it, I think I would have a greater sense of duty to be like, hey, this is helping. People are resonating with this. This is not just me putting my name out there and being like, hey, I'm a public published author and it's cool. If I see a need for it and I see people benefiting from it, then I say it's my obligation to do so. So I, I can't say no. I can't say yes. Uh, I think it's just about what the future holds. You got the right attitude. Because the first time I sat down to write personal narrative, I had written fiction, which I love doing, kind of, sort of, but I I found my home in personal narrative. And the first question I asked myself was, why would anybody care about this story about me if they don't know me? And the second answer was because it's of use to them in some way. How can my story be of use to someone else? And that's always where the juice is. So you come at it with the right attitude. If you do it, Brian, you already have the right position so you can do it. Well, oh, this has been a lot of fun. The book is Come Home Safe. Come Home Safe for all of you, well, you know, whoever you are, whatever your interest, check it out. If Brian, you're doing good work. You're doing good things. You're doing what you love, I think, which is always the right thing to do. But I'm not quite done with you yet. So you don't have a website, I know, because I couldn't find one. But you don't have a Twitter. Or do, do you have one or did I just not know where it is? We're working on it. I think it, I think it's in its beta form. I think it's come home safe with hyphens in it, okay. dot com. Okay. Um, but of course, you can check out the book. I mean, you can type in my name. Uh, I'm yeah, with it comes book. up. Yeah, it comes up. They've done an amazing job. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually February 7th is the publishing date. So while we're recording this, people that's can write. Oh, that's right. Today's God. I'm sorry. I forgot to say congrats. Cause this is the day. Oh, yeah. well done. Well done. This will be dropped for those of you listening. It's not February 7th, but I'm actually talking. So, wow. So you probably off to about go do stuff. Yeah. You book stuff. Well, you, you're, you're my inaugural interview on. Hey! The All right. So we're going to be doing more. I know I've got an interview with ABC News Live later, um, both in their morning and their evening. We're working on Good Morning America, but but you've got me first as uh, man. As See, I jumped all over this. This is great. All right, well, listen, I'm not quite done. So I got one more question before you go off and yeah. tell the world about your book. Uh, so even though you're new to writing, I want you to think about it. If you can and finish the sentence. If writing this book has taught you anything, maybe just about yourself, about life, it's taught you what. It's taught us that it's taught me that we are far more connected than we are divided in the idea of keeping ourselves, our children, our friends' children, the children of the world safe. They're, they're talking about police and talking about the criminal justice system 
divides a lot of people. It, I mean, we're lawyers, we're adversarial. But in this issue, we are so united in the idea of being safe, in the idea of how do we communicate to others? How do we communicate to ourselves? How do we communicate to our children? Um, that's the one thing that I learned. And that's the one thing that I hope gets passed along as a message that we are united in the idea of hoping that we and our children can be safe and creating this environment of safety for all children. Good answer. Good answer. Brian, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you for the plot, for the platform and everything you do. Have a good one. it connected united i do believe it's in our nature it's in our nature you know because when i write something i don't know anything about my reader really except that they're a person and i believe it's enough to connect with them i do i do listen i want to thank my producer rj jeffries thank you my friend i want to thank all of you for listening and you know you know what connects us really love that's right we all want it Yes, we do. So uh, we love to express it, love to have it, love to be with it. So if you want love, go find something or someone you love. Well, go find something you love to do and do it. Mm-hmm.